Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 16th of November, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We are delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and Debbie Evans, our UK Column nursing correspondent. We'll get straight on with the uh, big news of the day, which, of course, is the missile on Poland yesterday. Uh, this is CNN this morning. World leaders hold emergency meeting as Russian-made missile kills two in Poland. So the media this morning still doubling down on this idea that it was Russian. Uh, and Brian, uh, despite the fact that the Polish were saying yesterday to the media, do not preempt the investigation, they yeah. they they double down on this narrative. It's it's like the media in UK want World War Three, Mike. I I think this is absolutely appalling. The reporting. It's misleading, it's propaganda, um, it's clearly, um, what's the word, agitating for war. And the major titles in UK, I think, should be absolutely disgusted with themselves because what they have reported is a disgrace. Let's have a look at the Times here. Um, so the headline, you've got a little preview just now, Russian, Russians blamed for fatal strike on Poland. Um, what came in on the bottom of this, and this uh, headline uh, front page was taken from the BBC website. So this is BBC comment at the bottom of your screen. Many of Wednesday's front pages lead on the explosions in Poland, which killed two people. The Times reports on the theory that Russia could be behind the fatal missile strike near Poland's border with Ukraine. The US and other international powers said they were investigating, but are yet to apportion blame. While Ukraine has dismissed the possibility the strike could have been caused by one of its air defence missiles. So when you, when you uh, see comment from the BBC, um, really, you don't know whether this is the BBC or whether it's pure Ukrainian propaganda. But essentially, this was the message. It's the Russians. Uh, but if we read into the article, it did say here, an unnamed senior US intelligence officer blamed the Kremlin for the stray missiles. So an anonymous person, that's hearsay, uh, Mike, but then it went on to say the White House and the Pentagon insisted it was too soon to point the finger of blame at Moscow directly, but that's exactly what they did in their headline. Uh, so we're gonna say the Times headline here spins the facts. Uh, this was the I uh, newspaper. Uh, well, this one's pretty blatant. Putin's war spills into Poland and uh, comment in uh, what's what is that a sub headline bullet which is on that front page said if confirmed strikes will be the first time nato territory hit in ukraine war um, was it putin's war well actually what we're seeing more and more evidence for is this is nato and the eu's war here's the daily telegraph uh, graphic picture of course and clear-cut Russian missiles strike Poland. There we are. Couldn't get more blatant than that. Uh, but what have we got reported? Photographs from the Polish frontier show a large crater next to an upturned vehicle. Fire chiefs confirmed the fatalities, but said they had not established the cause of the blast. Uh, I've got another little inset here. A senior U.S. intelligence official said that Russian missiles were responsible, but the Pentagon said it it could not immediately uh, corroborate the report. So um, I'm going to put in here the Telegraph just deliberately lying in its headline and presumably the Telegraph wants World War Three. 
Um, Metro here, Russian missiles hit Poland, um, killed two people in Poland, a US intelligence source has said, uh, but no mention in this uh, front page uh, text uh, that the cause of the blast is not confirmed by the Pentagon or by the Polish. Um, so the Metro is deceiving the reader here by omission, effectively. Um, the Mirror doing the same thing, very clear, Russian bombs hit Poland. Uh, and the Guardian was this one, Russian barrage strikes Ukraine amid claims missiles hit Poland. So at least they've got uh, uh, claims there over the missiles hitting Poland. Uh, I found this um, comment very interesting from the Guardian, the White House Oh, sorry, sorry, this is the White House uh, said it could not confirm reports of a stray missile. So we'll, we'll give the Guardian probably the best of the bunch at the moment. Um, uh, sorry, I'll come back to this, Mike. There's so much of this stuff. I've slightly confused myself here. The White House said it could not confirm reports of a stray missile coming out of Poland. That was the bit that confused me and it's done it to me again. So what are they talking about here? Was was this an air defence missile fired out of by, Poland? By the Polish. By the Polish. So have we got um, uh, a battle going on where nation states are now fully involved? I don't think so. I think this is just poor reporting from The Guardian. But apologies for confusing you on that one. Uh, Daily Express here. Well, it's top left. Russian missiles kill two in Poland. So more deception. But I had to say, I did pick up on this secondary headline here of the royalty meeting the stars while we've got little boys dying of mould, presumably living in appalling conditions. But that's Britain's royalty for you. Uh, the star, if we translate to this star, was just dross, not worth buying or probably only good for lighting your fire with. But um, this one, I think, is uh, from you, Alex. You've got some comment um, about the UK column. I'll just pop it on the screen. Yes, uh, Neat Feet, who has an avatar that says no more lies, replying to a now deleted original tweet by a Dominic Tagon, uh, almost certainly about the big story of last night, replies simply, I think I'll listen to UK column news tomorrow before deciding what the likely truth is here. Puzzled face emoji. Uh, it's gratifying that uh, thousands of people just going by the slightly non-representative pool of Twitter uh, do say when big events hit the news, uh, we'd right, like to see some UK column analysis of the mainstream media before rushing to judgment. In your segment there, I think I've related the poor journalism in The Guardian, the penultimate slide there. Uh, it's a miscoordinated participial clause. Uh, what would have been unambiguous, and uh, as I edit UK column pieces, this is how I would have changed the word order, would have been reports coming out of Poland of a stray missile. But of course, the word order reports of a stray missile coming out of Poland is ambiguous and used to be trained out of people even before they became journalists at school or college. Not anymore. Well, let's have a look at uh, the pictures uh, that have arrived from the site of the grain elevator in the border village uh, uh, in the Lublin Voyevod ship. Uh, which is uh, the source of the action, the village of Shevodov. Uh, we can see it's uh, not by any stretch of the imagination a military gadgets uh, and kit expert, but I understand it is safe to say that this is a fragment of an S-300 
missile that's been downed just over the Ukrainian border, you know, a, a short walk from the border. Um, you can see the bolt pattern that's been highlighted. Uh, these are S-300 fragments. Uh, they're labelled here, and I do not know the provenance of the labeller. Uh, I will admit that, and I'm very happy in any of these details to be corrected. We're not like the mainstream media in that regard. We'll always publish a correction on screen. But you can see that the torch or flashlight uh, uh, focus on the images uh, of these fragments in the field uh, has been blown up with an inset showing a bolt pattern, a thread and a band and a couple of notches, identifying what kind of uh, kit this is. An S-300, of course, is a surface-to-air missile system in the normal run of events, and many Eastern European countries have it. One of the possible and maybe deliberate ambiguities here that the West is using is that S-300 is produced by Russia and exported to allied countries and former Soviet and former communist bloc countries uh, and is held in stock by a number of those countries. In that sense, you can get away with calling something a Russian missile, even if it is in the armed services uh, batteries uh, of uh, Poland or Ukraine. Uh, and indeed, as early as last night at 10pm Central European time, the same time all the way from here in the Netherlands to Poland, the original journalist who broke the story in Radio Zet, Z-E-T, the first local Polish platform that, uh, or na national uh, Polish platform that arrived at the scene, their correspondent Mariusz Gierszewski at eight minutes past 10 in the evening uh, was already uh, tweeting in Polish, my intelligence source states that this uh, fragment of missile for in, that's landed in Przewodów comes from the armed forces of Ukraine as early as 9 p.m. or eight minutes past nine British time last night when all the hoo-ha uh, was going on. So, so plenty of time, um, Alex, to deal with front pages. Absolutely. Front pages, are, even in these digitized days, are done sometime around midnight, give or take an hour, in my understanding. And of course, with the time difference, it was already uh, the next morning or late into the previous night in Bali, where all the great and the good of the, the world are gathering for the G20, where you may have seen footage of Biden giving a stark answer no to the question what happened in Poland, and then uh, local Indonesian, uh, sorry, um, yeah, White House people uh, detached to the president's entourage, then with a wave of the arm cleared people out of the room. But plenty of time to have corrected this. Obviously, the intent was to let this go uncorrected for a news cycle. Yes. Okay. Well, let's... Uh... Add a little bit more to that. So this is uh, the MASH Telegram channel uh, showing the upturned uh, trailer at the back there uh, and the the, uh, the big hole in the ground and so on and more on that. And let's just do a quick translation. So they were saying uh, in the photo, uh, a fragment of the rocket that fell on a Polish grain dryer. This is the S-300, an anti-missile defense weapon, uh, which is in service with the armed forces of Ukraine. Now let's have a look at the, at the, we've seen the media response, let's look at the political response. Initially, uh, uh, Dmitry Kaleba, the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister, said conspiracy theory to the accusations that was uh, Ukrainian. Um, but let's have a listen to uh, what Rishi Sunak had to say about this at the G20 conference. Good afternoon. Yesterday at the G20, my fellow leaders and I directly confronted the Russian foreign minister with the illegality and brutality of his country's war in Ukraine. Barely 12 hours later, more than 80 Russian missiles rained down on Western Ukraine, killing civilians and destroying civilian infrastructure. In the wake of these attacks, today we held an urgent meeting of allies to underscore our solidarity with Ukraine and Poland. 
I also spoke to Polish President Duda this morning to offer my wholehearted support and assurance that the United Kingdom stands steadfastly behind him and his people at this worrying time. We should all be clear, none of this would be happening if it weren't for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is the cruel and unrelenting reality of Putin's war. And as long as it goes on, it will continue to devastate the global economy. Well, that sounded like a little bit of a threat at the end there, but let's bring uh, Jens Stoltenberg on screen. Good afternoon. Yesterday at the G20, my fellow leaders and I directly confronted... Right, let's bring Jens Stoltenberg on screen and see what he had to say. Uh, if we could, Stephanie, please. Thanks. And uh, so he said, spoke with President Duda about the explosion in Poland. I offered my condolences for the loss of life. NATO is monitoring the situation and allies are closely consulting. Important that all the facts are established. Uh, so they're starting to suggest that perhaps it's important that they might get, want to get to the bottom of this. But nonetheless, it didn't stop the media. Uh, in the meantime, here's Rishi. And who's that on the right? Oh, Mr. Trudeau. And look, they're using a mobile phone. Now, I wondered that they only use an approved mobile phone there, Brian, because as we know, mobile phones, their leaks happen on mobile phones. Uh, and they were phoning Zelensky uh, to, to have a discussion with him about the situation. And then we had the G7 uh, getting together uh, to discuss the whole thing with Biden and uh, and so on. They're all there. So let's, sorry, before well, I... I, I just looked at the picture, Mike, and I thought it, it looks to me like an IKEA sales room is the impression I got, but I don't mean to be disrespectful from the setting. Yeah, okay, so let's just have a look at what the G7 said when they released their statement. We condemn the barbaric missile attacks at Russia perpetrated on Ukrainian cities and civilian infrastructure on Tuesday. We discussed the explosion that took place in Poland. Uh, we agreed to remain in close touch to determine appropriate next steps. Uh, we reaffirm our steadfast support for Ukraine. Uh, and even as the G20 meets to discuss the wider impacts of the war and they'll express their condolences and so on. But here was the thing. What was it the Ukrainian uh, for, uh, defense minister said or, uh, earlier? Uh, conspiracy theory. Unfortunately, uh, the latest this morning was that it was not a conspiracy theory because Biden has admitted this morning and published by Reuters just a couple of hours ago uh, that it was a Ukrainian air defense missile which was responsible for the Poland blast. Um, so, uh, and he's citing a NATO source. Uh, so, Alex, what are your thoughts? I wonder in the first instance, Mike, what size of entourage President Biden took with him on Air Force One to Indonesia, if he is still there, as I understand he is. Normally, there's uh, not a few military officers involved uh, of such a seniority that they will have been trained on such basic things as the S-300. And again, with my zero military experience and simply as a former Russia and Eastern Bloc watcher, one knows that S-300 is these days a pretty basic and increasingly obsolescent air defense system to protect cities and military bases. So out in the sticks on the border between Lublin and Lvov oblasts, uh, there's, there's not really a need to have many batteries right there. The question is the range, right? So 120 kilometers is the maximum range, well under 100 miles, for even the um, uh, extra uh, long trajectory adapted S-300, which is surface-to-surface uh, -surface version. And that, as far as I understand from the inventories, has never been claimed by the armed forces of the Ukraine to be in their inventory. Belarus, a Russian ally, does have them. 
But even the, the nearest salient of Belarus, the southwesternmost point of that country, is well outside that radius. What's inside the radius uh, is Lvov, uh, the largest city in western Ukraine, which is very likely to, well, is known to have S-300 batteries protecting both the civilian and military uh, stuff around there. Uh, so that, that should have been obvious to anyone with a military uniform on or an analyst hat on uh, around President Biden, even last night, European time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll just add here that, of course, um, if you want to get the truth of what's going on now, very often you have to go away from propaganda outlets such as the BBC and look at social media, being careful, of course, as to what their allegiance is. But I just wanted to say here that this morning at 10.03, this pro um, pro-Russian uh, Twitter platform came out with the news. Biden informs NATO and G7 that the explosion in Poland was caused by Ukrainian air defense missile. And then they've got further comment on here from the NATO Secretary General. No confirmation that the incident in Poland was the result of deliberate actions. So you compare this with the fact, as we've, we've shown, the propaganda from the UK and the Western media is just astonishing. The BBC did it, 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 it did eventually walk back on it. So this was the update to their uh, web page uh, this morning while we were preparing the news. Live, no sign, missile hit, was intentional attack, Polish president. And then we actually get a, an admission that it was very likely the explosion was caused by the Ukrainian air defences themselves. Uh, there was some other comment in a summary here. Um, so it's got the... Uh, it's got President Duda saying it's very likely that the missile explosion was Ukrainian air defence. It's got your uh, Jens Stoltenberg comment there, Mike, as well. So the BBC did pick up on it. But of course, this was a very minor step back from the fact that we had Western media effectively calling for uh, war. Because um, who was at the forefront? Well, it's Zelensky. Uh, he was quoted in the Telegraph report that we've shown the headlines on screen. Um, he said this, to fire missiles at NATO territory, this is a Russian missile attack on collective security. This is a very significant escalation. We must act. So this, um, Alex, this comedian is standing up. He is lying about what's actually happened and he's trying to drag NATO into a full-blown war. How, how dangerous do you want to get in this situation with this idiot? I, I know that sometimes you're gently ribbed by our viewers, Brian, for saying dangerous a lot, but a lot of things are dangerous. And look, you've uh, put the extra banner line on your slide, the dangerous comedian calling for World War Three. Uh, I don't know whether the viewers saw that, but you know, so, comedians are particularly dangerous. You know, they, they, a comedian is a more skilled actor than a deadpan actor, usually. And Zelensky has a long history of convincing deadpan comedic acting. You know, he's, he's really quite uh, known in the, the former Soviet space for this, for his flippancy with serious themes. Even when he was a chat show host, uh, one of the biggest uh, singers in, the, in that part of the world, Vachtan Kigabidze of Georgia, was on his chat show uh, some time ago. And Zelensky didn't you know, treat him with respect as the granddaddy of, granddaddy of the Russian-speaking musical world. He just quipped that he was yet another Georgian illegal immigrant in the country. You know, even in those days, people were shocked at just how, uh, how clumsy and, and how, how nonchalant he was. And that was simply with, you know, a doyen of the musical world. Uh, and now we're getting on to international and, and world war. 
type events. And Zelensky's got the same attitude. He just clicks his fingers and wants people to dance to his tune. Yeah, and of course, what the Western media is doing is is ramping up his profile so that people believe in what this man says. They think he's telling the truth. Uh, well, the cynicism goes on because he added this to his statement. And I want to say now to all our Polish brothers and sisters, Ukraine will always support you. Mm. Um, this is so cynical, so unpleasant. But of course, presumably he's going to support Poland by dropping missiles on them while he fights his war for NATO and the European Union. BBC, of course, um, was uh, busy sticking in the knife as usual. So here was uh, an article that was up this morning. Why did Russia invade Ukraine and has Putin's war failed? Uh, this is by Paul Kirby, Europe editor. And uh, if we have a look at this little embedded video clip, um, pure propaganda, but uh, you make your mind up. This is the video that uh, you can see or you saw just now with the man sitting on the, the, bo the uh, box of um, mortar rounds. Let's see what uh, the video said. We are almost fully in control of Kherson city. It's too early to be complacent. This war is far from over. Uh, well, there we go. Just little clips, pure propaganda put together by the BBC to supposedly inform people as to what had happened in Kherson in under a minute. Uh, but Alex, I found it fascinating that the military advisor was speaking there and he was named as an advisor. So is this part of the US or Poland or the UK? We don't really know. Um, but the, the last bit I thought was truly incredible that the BBC pretending that it didn't know that the Russians had destroyed the Antonovsky Bridge in their retreat, but the BBC was still investigating. This, this reporting is simply no longer credible by the BBC. And uh, that particular journalist, Paul Kirby, I think should be disgusted with his efforts. I think that's fair enough. Uh, in major conflicts, the BBC through the world wars and the, well, it wasn't around in the First World War, in the Second World War, the Cold War, major skirmishes in that time, would accept at face value what the central command of the side that Britain wasn't supporting said, certainly about the blowing up of a bridge. Uh, so it would have been German or Soviet forces say that this bridge has been uh, blown up and that would be carried by the BBC. But now this drive for trust and their version of impartiality leads them to put these uh, these cynical comments on screen. 
uh, which those listening in audio only won't have seen, that the BBC hasn't yet ascertained why the Antonivsky Bridge has collapsed, as they rather ridiculously said. Uh, that military advisor that you spoke of, if I read the caption in time and recalled it properly, it's Yuri Suck was the name. I haven't come across the man's name but doesn't he have a very cut glass British or American accent? Somewhere in, as often with Slavs who speak English very well, uh, you can't quite tell there's features of both phonologies. But I cannot believe that a senior or mid-ranking uh, regular officer of the Ukrainian armed forces would have just such good English as that, uh, as to say uh, it's too early to be complacent in this war with perfect pronunciation. No, right. I, I think the man is a civilian, as you say. I, I think he's a civilian advisor and, of course, uh, being complacent in the war because he knows that the West is going to drive this war for as long as possible. But just a bit more comment on Paul Kirby's article here. Uh, the big headline, what was Putin's original goal? And he lays in, apparently he knows what the military plans uh, of Putin and Russia were in the early days because he points out how they haven't achieved any of their objectives. Uh, but this uh, interested me here because he starts off talking about the uh, the Russians' desire to do mili demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, and then in comes this little bit. It was framed as an attempt at preventing NATO from gaining a foothold in Ukraine. This is conflating issues, uh, but basically, um, we've got to remember here that that uh, Russia clearly stated its concerns about NATO forces coming into Ukraine and particularly nuclear weapons in Ukraine. So either this man is very ignorant of the politics in the area, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that he's writing a very clever article in order to obfuscate reality and mislead the public. And if you follow it on through where he says that the uh, Russian military campaign just doesn't add up, um, what does he do? He simply quotes uh, Ukrainian claims. So we, we've we've got rid of uh, facts and we just simply claim what the uh, Ukrainians have said. Uh, but in the second paragraph down here, he's talking about the negotiations, which he said, well, of course, Ukraine wanted the, the negotiations, but they just broke down. That's his final two words. They just broke down. But we know, of course, they didn't break down. They were undermined by the West, with Boris Johnson's name coming up very strongly. Mm. So I'll end it there because the BBC really what a disgraceful organisation. And are they calling for peace in Ukraine? No, they clearly want to ramp up World War Three. Uh, and just a final comment on Zelensky, because, of course, uh, it was only yesterday that uh, he was at the G or speaking at the G20 virtually, I believe, uh, uh, calling on them to support his efforts for peace. So please choose your path for leadership, he was saying, and together we'll surely implement the peace formula. Yeah. He was using the word peace once again. And uh, well, there we go. A day later uh, and something happens and he's uh, reversing his position once again. Well, is this uh, this is life as a puppet, isn't it? Right. At one minute he can go in one direction, and the next minute the strings are pulling him in another one. But meanwhile, on the battlefield, horrific things going on. Uh, just going to show you this little clip, which I'll talk through. This is, of course, how much of the battle is being fought by drone surveillance of the battlefield. This is the Ukrainians trying to hide a sand system in a barn. Uh, but as we see, it does not end well for the Ukrainian troops and their piece of equipment. 
And this is happening really across the whole of the battlefield in Ukraine. Small numbers of Ukrainian troops are being hunted out and destroyed. And the longer the war goes on, the worse it is going to be. And a pretty vicious end as a, a, a drone missile slams into that location. But if we just pop that on, on screen, would it, yeah, we just bring this in. Uh, the comments coming across social media here. So uh, a SAM system gets hidden in a barn. So that's putting it under the protection of what is largely civilian infrastructure. And the comment here coming in that they, the West, will write that the Russian armed forces are hitting peaceful farms. And this, this of course, is reality. People are identifying that the propaganda coming out of the West now is truly disgraceful. Uh, but don't worry, uh, the Ministry of Defence is riding to the rescue and uh, we're going to be building more frigates, uh, Brian. Uh, so £4.2 billion pound contract going to BAE Systems, uh, Govan and Scotstown in uh, Glasgow, or near Glasgow, obviously. Uh, and uh, these are going to be leading the um, anti-submarine warfare capability of the Royal Navy. So we've got uh, HMS Birmingham, HMS Sheffield, HMS Newcastle, HMS Edinburgh and HMS London. Uh, are going to join the first three T-26 uh, frigates uh, already in build. That's HMS Glasgow, HMS Cardiff and HMS Belfast. Um, so there we go. They're going to replace the Type 23s. And I'm sure they will be able to sail in warm water. Probably. We hope so, Mike. Uh, now, uh, EU defence. And of course, uh, a few weeks ago, while, Theresa, uh, sorry, while Liz Truss was still uh, Prime Minister, she... Um, went off to uh, Prague, I believe uh, this was, and was signing us up to PESCO. Uh, that uh, got some response from some people, but not very much. It was quite muted, uh, largely. Uh, well, the EU has now uh, confirmed that the UK is being invited to join PESCO and particularly the military mobility uh, project. Uh, and so this is Joseph Burrell uh, this morning saying the PESCO project, military mobility led by the Netherlands, provides the right platform after the US, Canada and Norway joined last year, the UK's participation is another proof of the importance of this project. So Alex, uh, just briefly, your, uh, your comments on that, because that is uh, really quite a development. Uh, it is. Uh, veterans groups uh, have been putting together briefing sheets on this. Some of the free media is talking about it. None of the commentators in even the most sceptical of the mainstream titles that I have seen yet. But for those new to UK Column, we have a five-year backstory on reporting on this. And the key thing, particularly when you come to this part of PESCO, military mobility, is the Union of Defence Industries, the investors in defence industries. And throughout the 20th century, they have been in the City of London and in Manhattan. And they have had a huge interest in both world wars and the peace settlements that followed both of those world wars and the rearmaments. And it's on that basis, explicitly so, this isn't me editorializing, it's on that basis, uh, as admitted by both the US and the EU in its triangle building its own Pentagon in Brussels, um, that, that, that the project was of interest to the United States because it represented a huge amount of uh, US defense industry uh, input and uh, foot in the door to European markets. And of course, military mobility is the sharp end of that because we have two large ports here, one in Belgium, one in Netherlands, Antwerp and Rotterdam. And not only do they export Germany's goods to the world and bring Chinese goods into Europe, but they are uh, the way in which Uncle Sam can roll out his tanks uh, and bring them across the North European plain to Poland in case any things go bang in the night, as we saw last night. Indeed.
Okay, well, we've been focusing uh, this morning on the media and their activities to foment war. Let's uh, look at some more efforts here. So this is uh, a pinned tweet uh, from the British government, uh, UK and Solomon Islands. Uh, this is the uh, Solomon Islands uh, embassy, if you like. Uh, amazing start to our BBC Media Action Partnership uh, with News uh, SIBC and uh, this week uh, with first training session for SIBC journalists, radio presenters and programmers. So BBC Action uh, already in the uh, South Atlantic, or at least the South, sorry, South Pacific, I should say. Uh, let's have a look at the map. This is where the Solomon Islands are. Now, why is this uh, important? Uh, well, if we look at what Sergei Lavrov was saying just a few days ago, uh, NATO is pushing the militarization of this region, talking about the South Pacific, uh, clearly aimed at containing China and limiting Russian interests in the region. Uh, and we've mentioned BBC Ac Media Action many times. Here's their website, uh, the BBC's international charity, as they're describing it. Uh, and we've got to remember that if we remind ourselves of Juliet Harkin's uh, quote from a few years ago, uh, we, BBC Media Action, worked in 2004 with individuals within the Syrian ministry who wanted change and tried them to get them to be the drivers of that. All media development work that's been done in Syria has, in my uh, opinion, been predicated on the idea that there can be change from within. You have an, authorita an authoritarian regime uh, and you find who the reformers are uh, within that and you work with them. Now, I'm not suggesting that BBC Media Action is making some kind of effort at regime change in the Solomon Islands. But if what you're attempting to do is to change the minds of, of uh, people, of inhabitants in the, through, in the region, through the media, then you've got to train the media in your way of doing things. Um, and uh, my point here is that uh, Juliet Harkin was talking about BBC Media Action starting projects in Syria in 2004, uh, which then led to uh, a positive uh, media environment for what happened from 2011 onwards um, and therefore and of course the western media promoting the Syrian war as much as they possibly could. Uh, now uh, I'm suggesting that those are the types of timescales we might want to be looking at. If BBC media action is starting to become active in the region then perhaps we're looking at what eight to ten years before there's some kind of hotter action Move shall we say. Yes. Yes, so we, we should be uh, uh, paying attention to that. And sure. we should remember that, of course, BBC Media Action is being funded by the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office uh, in this. So fcdospending.ukcolumn.org if you want to keep a track of what uh, BBC Media Action, uh, what sort of money they're getting. Yeah, so this is the velvet glove, Alex. Um, get in, control the media, set the agenda, get the sound bites out, and then the the military, the NATO units can come in in due course. It might shock people to hear you put it that way, Brian, but you've ruminated for a while on it. And we've seen this happening on various continents. It does look that way. Uh, and no disrespect to the honest Solomonese people, but it's pretty easy as a media environment to manipulate. I was actually at boarding school with an Australian lad uh, whose father at the time was at the Commonwealth Secretariat in London but uh, the previous posting of my friend's father was Australian High Commissioner to the Solomon Islands. And back in the late 80s, so this wasn't like dark ages, this is still modern times, uh, the Solomonese press in Honiara was reporting that Sir Maxwell Gaylard, the Australian High Commissioner, that's the equivalent of ambassador within Commonwealth countries, was putting on, on a diver's uniform at night or a, a snorkeling uh, uh, uniform and swimming out uh, to the 
uh, US warships anchored in the bay to get his secret instructions. And this stuff was digested by the Solomonese. So, you know, people can laugh at, you know, third world gullibility, but I'm afraid there are a lot of countries where people do believe what they are told, particularly in television broadcasts, much more than they are in Western countries. And that is, I'm afraid, the pool in which BBC monitoring can stir. Yeah, thank you. Okay, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up uh, at the UK column shop. And thank you very much to everybody that's uh, been picking up a beanie hat for the winter. That is uh, much appreciated. Uh, but to share material on the various platforms. Uh, now, Alex, uh, Let's have a look, or is this you? I just wanted to put in a little bit of an advert here for the tremendous work that the ladies are doing in Wales. Uh, Today is the second day of the court case where these mothers are uh, challenging the Welsh government on the implementation of religious and sex education, which is clearly designed to groom young children. Um, uh, The mothers put their case in the court yesterday. There was an hour left at the end of the day uh, for the government to start its response. Um, And one of the interesting things that came out is it appeared that the uh, Welsh government was very clear in its defence to try and distance itself from the idea that the religious sex education policy had come in via the UN and UNESCO. However, all the documentation which the mothers have and have, have submitted for evidence shows that that is indeed the case. So this is not something which has been cooked up in the first instance, even in Westminster, and then come through to Wales as a separate country, separate region. No, this is policy which has come out of the UN. So we have to wait and see what happens today. Um, But I, I want to say absolute tremendous effort by those Welsh mothers and well done to everybody who's managed to get to the court case in order to support them today. Um, Okay, Alex, uh, first thing you want to do, I think, is to highlight um, where people can see comment pieces that are on the UK Column website. Yes, with the welcome increase in tempo of our written content, people are used to glancing at the first screen at the top of the homepage when they visit that one hopes every day. And perhaps they may be going to the very bottom to see the ticker tape feed of, uh, or, or the, 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 the churn of stories we're watching, which is third party articles. But just above that, in an area of the homepage people might just not glance at very much, is comment where we contain the blogs. If people write opinion pieces, uh, often if they're not in the profession in question, but even if they are, and the, the piece tends towards uh, more opinion than a hard fact, we put that in the comment section. So do make sure that you view things there. And uh, you will see that the Devi Evans blog in the middle of that screen uh, will be refreshed, by the way, later today. Um, but we have a new icon for that, which Debbie is very pleased about. So it has a an, an image. Uh, and if people are wondering where the back issues are of the Debbie Evans blog, for example, the 8th of November one hasn't been there for a full week and will probably be replaced today by the new one, then go to the latest blog you can find in that comment section and click on the Debbie Evans name at the top of the article in the byline and you will see her back catalogue of uh, pieces written, not just her blogs. Okay, now let's uh, come on to Dutch farmers. Alex? Yes, this rumbles on. And uh, Money Circus is written by uh, a man who knows the British deep state very well, who actually used to live in The Hague. He now lives in Tbilisi, Georgia, and comments on East-West relations quite a lot. But he's very astute, as the name of the blog on Substack would suggest, on money matters. So in that regard, 
the Mummy Circus uh, author, Paul, has uh, uh, written this crisis update, which our own viewer, Azra Dale, has also reblogged on her own Substack uh, page. Um, people will be aware that farmers have been told that if the part of the country in which they farm, even if they own the farm outright, uh, has been zoned as urban only, the argument is that that's for large numbers of immigrants to come and populate strip cities. Uh, but be that as it may, if that's been zoned, then farmers are told you must uh, move to a different part of the country, change how you farm and how you sell your products, or you must sell up in a compulsory purchase or eminent domain, as it would be called in the States. Now, here's the comment part of the end of the article, the assessment, although it contains, again, facts. People shouldn't be carried away with this difference between comment and fact. They're often interwoven in our pieces, as in anyone else in the mainstream media. Uh, the comment is this. Farmers own about 70% of the Netherlands. Let's put that back on screen. If the government expropriates, that's what we're talking about in this supposed first world country, and it's been the, the, the term boeren onteigening or expropriation of the farmers has been current in the Netherlands for a year and a half now. If the Dutch government expropriates half the farmers, that will be 35% of all land. And this country isn't as small as people think it is. You know, it takes a, a few hours to drive across. This kind of influence and ambition, says Money Circus, suggests that those behind it have immense wealth and power, desiring for whatever reason to direct and gaslight our minds. Six non-governmental organisations push the policy of expropriation, says the documentary maker James Patrick. The Agricultural Bank, and that's the supreme irony, it was the one of the world's only AAA-rated private uh, retail banks, um, and it started off as a bunch of local building societies for farmers, but Rubber Bank has flipped totally and has told farmers that they may recall loans if farmers don't dance to the right tune. Rubber Bank may drive down the value of farmland by doing so, and it's now a centralised national bank, which it never was in the past, when the government will buy the land, handing it to the non-governmental organisations as the custodians. They get control of the land at public expense. It's stuff to make your spine tremble. Um, still in the Netherlands, we see that the junior minister or secretary of state, as the Dutch called him in their nomenclature, uh, Eric van der Burg, who is responsible for migration and asylum policy, when giving remarks to parliamentarians uh, a couple of nights ago, as reported by the Volkskrant, is saying, I will probably not have to oblige the municipalities to take their fair share. So there is a dispersal policy, much as we've been hearing from David, uh, and it's not the first time we've had dispersal policies of migrants to Scotland. There was a big problem with Kurds in Glasgow 15, 20 years ago. Um, that, that is being replicated now, but the Dutch are doing it through incentives, and they're telling the 12 provinces that they will cas cascade down to the over 300 municipalities in the country both uh, sticks and carrots to make them pretty much all volunteer to house migrants. Maybe some will end up in hotels, although the Dutch prefer these asylum seeker centres. Um, as we have Debbie on today, and she'll be talking a lot about the British pharmaceutical regulator or enabler, the MHRA, it's worth mentioning uh, that their Swiss equivalent body, Swiss Medic, has now a criminal complaint filed against it. The people behind that legal action have a website at coronacomplaint.ch slash criminal hyphen complaint. And you can see that using a good uh, online translation service, DeepL, which is better than Google Translate, uh, they have provided in uh, 
six European languages, uh, various things on their website, uh, the, the, the documents they've put into the court, and those who speak German can also watch the proceedings uh, or the, the press conference about the launch of the proceedings in Zurich. Uh, also brought to my notice uh, just a couple of days ago, and uh, a question for viewers really to look into this carefully, the World Health Organization has now sent to its European region, which is you know, greater Europe really, uh, all the way out to Azerbaijan, uh, the detail on what to do about what Tedros famously called the infodemic that was worse than the pandemic. The document is called Implementation Guidance for Advancing Infodemic Management in risk communication and community engagement in the World Health Organization European region. And just one of the definitions in that document is this. This information is similar to misinformation, but with a specific, often political agenda. This information includes incorrect, misleading or misattributed information. That's three ways to get you. But it can also include real information. So what's the sin here? real information that is artificially amplified, amplified is the buzzword of the decade, with harmful intent. And that is what they're calling malinformation. And it may contain manipulation of individuals' behavior. Of course, when governments call it, it's, do it, it's called nudging to improve out, outcomes. Uh, so in the next paragraph, we read that the messages and images used in disinformation, they're talking about the likes of UK Column, are often real or truthful, but, Here's the sin, they're used out of context, they're mislabeled or they're amplified, a word no one seems to be able to define in the media, to create emotive responses and affect behavior. Gentlemen, I've never heard of information that's put out with no intent to affect behavior or emotion. Have you? Well, that's, that's the whole point of communicating, isn't it? You don't normally communicate with somebody so that there's a stunning silence and nothing happens. The minimum you hope for is a re response. But what I pick up from that uh, uh, segment there is the detail of language that they're using around techniques of applied behavioral psychology. So I think they're giving their own game away because their analysis of what other people, such as the UK column may do, uh, they are revealing that their own heads are absolutely full of uh, applied psychology and uh, their wish is to manipulate the population. Yeah, Alex, uh, just briefly on these two, if we could. These are articles, so they're at the top of the homepage at the moment, or you can find them in the uh, topics, on the topics menu um, from the justice section, and also on the homepage, Charles Mallet, who's become a regular policing commentator for us, has written this. This is not Charles posing, this is a good old-fashioned British Bobby in the days when uh, the tea and cakes were served to, to the visiting Bobbies. The piece is called The Police Are Not the Public, and The Public Are Not the Police, and as he, I think, will often be doing, he's embedded in it an audio comment at the top. There's a, a standalone audio comment on Just Stop Oil, the M25 arrest of the press, which should be up either today or tomorrow on the website. Um, in researching this, I found that the policing uh, courts crime and sentencing bill, if I've got the order of that title right, the new uh, horror bill that's just passed that criminalizes protest has a section 60. We'll put it on the screen for just a couple of seconds. We won't read any of it, but look, this is the statutory toe in the door now. This is the foothold by which uh, the Secretary of State, who's responsible for policing, can tell police you're allowed to log non-crime hate incidents, uh, which started its life, of course, really as a policy um, in police forces only. We also have, uh, back to the uh, opinion part of the website, lower down, 
Uh, we have uh, Greg Hopkinson, the retired surgeon, who of course did a video interview with Brian not long ago. He's produced an opinion piece on the General Medical Council not being fit for purpose, in his opinion, because they don't even know whether the people that they relicensed in a hurry during the COVID crisis uh, were fit to practice or not. And our own Debbie, who will be uh, speaking to us in a moment, uh, has this scared of the National Health Service, an article that uh, thumbnail images from US sources, but iatrogenic or doctor caused death is, I'm, as far as I'm aware, uh, cause of death number three in Britain and other Western countries as well. And this has uh, got quite a lot of traction uh, in social media because a lot of people are scared of the NHS. And Debbie ex explores the reasons why in this piece. Okay, and we just also want to highlight uh, this article uh, called the entitled The Day of the Skripal uh, by Tim Norman. Uh, and this, Alex, is a spectacular article. It's uh, an extremely long read. And uh, so we strongly suggest anybody wanting to read it does so on a, a laptop or a desktop PC because mobile devices are struggling to, uh, to cope with it. But nonetheless, uh, it's worth the effort. Yes, um, I've, I've got an actual... Um image to illustrate uh, why uh, Tim Norman put this together. Those who know their 19th century fiction, and I'm, I'm not proud to say Lewis Carroll was an old rugbyan like me because he also had an, a, a penchant for underage girls. Uh, but of course, he wrote these famous books, uh, Alice in Wonderland and uh, Through the Looking Glass. And one of his characters not memorably says it's entered the English idiomatic vocabulary. Sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Well, uh, Tim Norman, in his, uh, it equates to 200 pages of A4 if you print it out, so don't. In his chronology, he is simply telling us uh, this is what the mainstream media, the BBC, and above all government sources and police sources would have you believe about the 24 hour period. So it's not six impossible things before breakfast, it's 10 impossible things before Sunday lunch, quite literally, in this piece. Here's my personal uh, favourite extracts. We've got Gina Haspel at the CIA in the hastily deleted New York Times report saying that uh, Trump choked over whatever he was drinking at the Oval Office uh, as he was shown uh, ducks and children, or sorry, just, just ducks that had keeled over because of the sloppy work of the GRU, uh, because there's a, there's a duck feeding uh, interlude in the Sunday afternoon of this day of the Skripal. Uh, we have the police showing the mother of some boys uh, TV footage um, or, or, of uh, where the, the ducks are being fed together with Skripal. Uh, and, you know, they innocently fed the ducks and now they've been caught up in this terrifying experience. And how did the Daily Mail report this? Putin's youngest victim, schoolboy 12, on how he was exposed to deadly poison after Russian spy Sergei Skripal gave him bread to feed ducks in Salisbury. A bit later in the piece, Laurie Bristow, who was Her Majesty's ambassador in, in Moscow at the time, gave a speech and even the lack of a definite article is significant. Well done, Tim Norman. Uh, he said, there is no doubt that Novichok with no article was produced in Russia by the Russian state. He did not say the Novichok used on the attack on Skripal, if indeed it was Novichok rather than fentanyl, was produced in Russia by the Russian state. It's packed with such detail. You absolutely must read it. Um, yes, and uh, Alex, I, ju I think we should move on without clarifying your comment earlier on about uh, about uh, Lewis Carroll. Uh, you weren't suggesting that he also liked uh, young, underage teenage girls uh, also uh, with respect to yourself. You were talking about yes. also with respect to other aspects of what he was doing in his life. As, as people have heard already, I don't like uh, misrelated participles. So yes, uh, he was an old rugbyan, but also... Uh, somebody who had an untoward interest uh, in, in children. So unfortunately, this is the way with a lot of our uh, 
uh, are paragons of the of the author world behind the scenes. Yes, uh, but the, the image that came to mind with Skripal as, as a whole is people might have seen the cartoon mocking what Scientologists believe in their secret material, and uh, you remember that there was this flashing text on screen at one stage when the prehistoric cosmic war was going on. This is what Scientologists actually believe. Well, as you're reading the two equivalent of 200 pages of A4 of Tim Norman's chronology of what the BBC and uh, Horton Down told us, this is what the British state actually believes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, we, we'll move on to uh, health-related matters. And Debbie, thank you for being patient. There's just so much stuff to report these days but um you have been um shocked i think is the right word by what you've been observing around the mhra but take us take us through your segment yeah thank you everyone and um and thank you also for the shout out for the blog alex and the reason that i do that is to cover so many stories that we're not able to cover on the news so today exclusively uh, we're going to be talking about the MHRA board meeting, which was held yesterday. Um, before we come on to the slides, I just want to say this MHRA board meeting was watched by a total of 127 people. Apparently, uh, Stephen Lightfoot took it down to 75 public, 25 in the industry, four journalists, seven health staff and 16 MHRA staff. What he probably didn't take into account was the fact that I was joined on that MHRA board meeting by many other people that we are in contact with, including many of the vaccine injured. The meeting was absolutely appalling. And I hope if someone's watching from the MHRA, because I'm sure they will be, because they know that we report on the board meetings, that those that with vaccine injuries, excuse me, as we, as we will come to see, were treated with utter disrespect the meeting was full of self-congratulatory applause. They talked about skewing data. They talked about employing an in-house behavioral scientist. And, you know, I just want to come back to the medicines part of it because medicine, it's not a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. These are chemicals. These are chemical medicines. If we all called them chemicals, which is what they are, they are, they are built by chemical engineers. They're cooked up in chemical kitchens. And if we were told that what we were taking from the pharmacist or the chemist was chemical, maybe we wouldn't be so keen to put our hands in the cupboard knowing that we're taking chemicals. So that's one word of warning. But what I want to come on to is just to show people the kind of people who were at the MHRA board meeting yesterday. So the chair of the MHRA board meeting is Stephen Lightfoot. Now, just freeze the screen and read about Stephen Lightfoot before we go on, because he is up to his neck and has been for many years in pharmaceuticals. We've also got Dame June Rain, of course, which we're, um, I think everybody is familiar with Dame June Rain. She's been involved in pharmacovigilance for a very long time, so she's got no excuse at all not to know what harms that can be done from medicines. We've also got Dr. Alison Cave. And you'll see that her pedigree is the Wellcome Trust, and she's the Chief Safety Officer for the MHRA. And then you'll also see Mercy Jasingham. Now, she's a non-executive member of the MHRA, and she chairs the Patient Safety Executive. So these are the kind of people that we've got appearing at the MHRA board meeting. There's many more, but that's just some of them. So 
I decided I've become a little bit braver now. I'm not sure that I'm going to get invited to another board meeting. But because there were so many vaccine injured that were watching and that were contacting me during the board meeting, encouraging me and begging me to ask questions, that's exactly what I did. So the next slide, you might want to freeze the screen here because there are so many questions that I asked. These are the screenshots of what I asked. And you'll see that I didn't get any answers, every single comment I made. In fact, in the middle of the comments, you'll see I had to ask Stephen Lightfoot, please, could someone have the courtesy to acknowledge my questions? Um, I was asking whether Henrietta Hughes was invited to the board meeting. And you'll see a comment on the bottom there uh, that I mentioned champagne. We'll come to that in a minute. And then if we just, if you freeze the screen on all of those questions, we'll come to the next screen which again is my questions. And the ones highlighted in red, that I've circled in red, those are the two responses that I received back from the MHRA. Now, the first one was a response that everybody received. Vaccine injured and anyone else that submitted a question, they got that. Straight after I'd asked Stephen Lightfoot for an acknowledgement, everyone received that. The second one highlighted in red is directed at me. And uh, as you can see, I bounce back with a reply because I'm saying, are you realising the vaccine injured are watching you? Are you realising that they need to talk to you? Because they, they seem to have no, no knowledge at all that they were being watched. So then we flip to the next screen and you can see that plenty of questions were left unanswered. And this wasn't, these weren't my questions, these were someone else's questions, so thank you very much indeed to the person that sent those to me. That question, all of those questions were left unanswered as well, and you can see too, one of them refers to UK Column. So the bottom, bottom right, UK Column have been able to show your yellow data in an easy to find information format, and the safety signals are shouting out so loudly, but no one is listening. So. If we go on and we see what the vaccine injured felt, I'm not going to read them all out, but maybe maybe Brian or Mike, you might like to read um, the second one out, which comes as a representative of the COVID-19 vaccine injured. It's a little bit small for me to read out. Okay, this, the second one is, if the biggest issue that you found with the Cumberledge report is engagement with patients, just pick up a phone and talk to us. There will never be a nice experience when reporting an adverse reaction, especially when the patient is ill. How are these reports followed up? How do you connect with patients who have suffered a severe adverse reaction? So far, we know of only several who have had any further engagement with Yellow Card other than the, their reports, which they have done themselves. And the last, shall I read the last one out as, as well, uh, Debbie? It says, uh, the public trust is fading. You are not responding to patients. You are not reassuring us that you are doing your work correctly, especially those of us who suffered adverse reactions. And the next slide too is from someone else that's vaccine injured, um, never got their questions answered. And, you know, sorry, Brian, did you want to jump yes, in there? Yes, sorry, for, for, uh, just indicating I want to come in there because uh, I, I was only able to see these this morning. So I just wanted to uh, just pop back and read a little one of these. Um, uh, 
we've got morning. Thank you for joining this morning's board meeting for all the comments and questions submitted. Um, somebody's asking about the checks and balances on conflict of interest and um, people asking, as you said, when, when will questions be answered? Why were they not addressed today? Yeah, exactly. And, and I can tell you now that this board meeting in particular, I'm so grateful to everybody that attended this board meeting, specifically the vaccine injured, but I am so sorry that they had to witness this because they are angry, they're upset. It has caused absolute outrage, absolute outrage. And just to give you a few examples, these, and we will be having the MHRA board meeting in full, exclusively on the column in the next few days. But just for now, we've pulled out a few clips. Now, the reason I've pulled out these couple of clips is the first one is about skewing data and how the COVID-19 vaccine data has been simply too much to deal with pretty much. So they've had to remove it from the yellow card data. And the second bit is a bit of frivolity because I keep saying that this is a love-in and that the MHRA are laughing and they're self-applauding and they're, um, it, it really is a big love-in. So these two clips I hope will reflect what I've been saying, but there's an awful lot more in the MHRA board meeting, which I know in future news as we'll be coming on to. So have a look at these. Well, it's not a concern, it's actually how do we best present the information so that people can understand the work that's going on in the... In the oh. Oh, sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon. Not a concern, um, really trying to work out how best to present this information. So what we've tried to do with the yellow card reports is to illustrate the different types of reporters. But for that particular section, trends are difficult to report because they're heavily influenced by the COVID-19 uh, vaccine reports. And it depends where we are yeah. in a deployment. So that's why we've pulled those out so that then we can start to present trends with and without that because they, they skew the figures too much. In terms of the benefit risk evaluations, they're hard to report on because the range of yeah. the different types of benefit risk reviews are huge. You can yeah. have incredibly complex multi-stakeholder reviews that take months and months to go through, more studies done, more information required. And then you can have relatively quick reviews. It might be a field safety notice from a device that can be relatively quick to review. So how we present that to, mm. to the board so that they understand the scale and scope mm. of the work is something that we're trying to improve on. And, and I think we're getting there, mm. but we probably could try and break those down a little bit more. Yeah, you see, I, I think that's really moved forward, if mm. I'm honest, because I think actually it, benefit risk evaluation is complex and it's hugely different. Mm. I, and I completely get that. But because we've had no scale of the numbers, you know, yeah. we also had no appreciation of the, that level of complexity. And yeah. I think this starts to tease that out. Similarly, with the actions, the specific actions that we're taking to minimise risk yep. to patients, I feel that's a really helpful, because uh, you know, it's not just about all the inputs, it's what are we doing with it, yes. you know, and, and of course that's going to vary enormously, but I think mm. it gives a level of scale of impact in the communities and the population that we're serving. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, I think this is well, moving exactly in the right direction, Alison. Good to know because that's it's, helpful. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's what are we doing with all that information, all mm -hmm. that expertise and all that uh, information. So mm -hmm. that's, that's how I feel, think about it. I have to say, so, I, don't, I don't even know where to begin with that, Debbie. That, that's, uh, what was it? He was trying to sell something there. He was selling 
something. This was not a, a board meeting, a review of the, the the capabilities of the MHRA. This was a sales job. Well, I, I, just a slightly different take on it. Sale, what was the sales job? Defending himself. They know there's a pack of trouble coming, and now he's into a ponder waffle that they've collected data, which clearly shows that people have been uh, have died or been seriously injured or injured as a result of vaccines. And he's he's trying to hide it in waffle about how they handled data. So the sales pitch is this smokescreen to try and defend himself and his colleagues. That's how I take it. Uh, but tell us about Champagne then. Well, yes, uh, this is why I just wanted. And also very quickly, when we do put the MHRA board meeting up, the end of the public questions, Alison Cave gets really, she gets cross. She gets really cross and she defends the COVID-19 vaccine data. So that's just another little bit of, uh, uh, to, to look forward to. But no, um, just to, just to illustrate the frivolity that goes on in the MHRA board meeting, have a look at this. But uh, I know, Claire, you wanted to uh, make a point. I did. Um, and June's comment about a particular date did make you smile because I know a couple of us have got champagne on ice ready for a few Any excuse. However, what, once we've had our, our glass of fizz, it, it's back to what I was saying before about keeping our foot on the gas. And what I'm thinking about now is sustaining and maintaining yeah. this. So we've talked about NHS app and the degree to which, uh, the extent to which this might integrate with that, but that's not the only show in yeah. town. And we don't know um, what will happen in future in the health ecosystem. So again, thinking about the technology, keeping it refreshed and modern and flexible enough to be able to react to whatever comes our way, but also from a user experience perspective. So there are a lot of products and technology that make up Safety Connect and a lot of vendors and suppliers. Um, so just having that big, robust support wrap, I suppose, first line, second line, et cetera, and making sure we always have the people, process, yeah. processes and technology to maintain that user experience and making sure that what we're creating now, not to take the shine off, off this huge achievement, we're not, we're keeping an eye on making sure it doesn't become a legacy product yes. um, mm. of the future. So that's, yeah, glass of champagne and away we go onto the next sort of challenge and phase of yeah. um, this solution. Away we go with the champagne. Let's have the champagne on ice. Do you know what? The vaccine injured that were watching that, that was Claire Harrison. She's the chief technology officer for the MHRA. This wasn't the first time that the whole board dissolved in laughter. They were dissolving in laughter at fatalities. Oh, and Alison Cave said that every single fatality as a result of the COVID-19 vaccine was investigated personally by the MHRA. Well, that's not what I'm hearing. So... The whole meeting was absolutely insensitive, it was offensive, and it was dangerous. Um, one of our amazing vaccine-injured uh, writers now, who's published on UK Column, uh, Wayne, he wrote an account of how he felt after the MHRA board meeting. You might just want to read out a little tiny bit of it, and I know that others can freeze, freeze the screen, and um, I know that Alex right. has been, is going to publish it as well. Okay, we'll just do the top right because I can read that with ease here in the studio. So Wayne says, I found it so insulting when a question was raised on patient safety 
whereby the room then all burst into laughter. How ignorant to all those listening in who trusted a government department when they stated that their vaccine was safe and effective on hearing this and certainly not a laughing matter. I now have serious concerns that our thoughts weren't being taken seriously today as many people have been harmed and killed by these treatments. And what must it be like to be seriously injured by the vaccine and listen to those people? Um, I'm lost for words, Alex. I am lost for words. It's despicable and they need to be brought to account. Despicable indeed. And Wayne has very well embodied that you can move from awful brain fog through willpower and the support that's offered by UK CV family to a position of writing very eloquently. Now that blog, just as Debbie mentioned, I'm going to mention it in the show notes uploaded with the embedding of this video when it goes on to ukcolumn.org. Uh, I won't be publishing it as a syndicated piece, but you'll find the link to what Debbie has just referred to there or directly by going to waynecunnington.substack.com. That's Cunnington, not Cunningham. Uh, or you can read his original piece for UK Column, which we have published as a full piece for us, which is if you go to ukcolumn.org's search function and search for the name Wayne, you'll find it that way. But this isn't the only MHRA grief uh, that they're facing now as they tackle vaccine adverse reactions or more generally adverse reactions to all the drugs and medical devices that they purport to regulate for the British people and increasingly for the rest of the world, it seems. Uh, you reported uh, a few days ago on the MHRA's hashtag campaign Medical Safety Week or Med Safety Week with these, uh, as I called them in my show notes, lolling legumes, cutely clutching their bellies uh, as, as a nice way of explaining to the three-year-olds in the public what adverse reactions to drugs and medication are. Uh, well, there's been some comeback on that as well. One view on Twitter is, the yellow card, a reply to the MHRA's uh, campaign, uh, the yellow card data is being handled by artificial intelligence. You, the MHRA, are doing nothing with the data other than storing it electronically. And of course, we know passing it back to the pharmaceuticals. Your organization, MHRA, is no use to the public, but you absorb public money. Second response to the same campaign, you need to stop trolling us with this meaningless ad campaign thousands of adverse drug reactions and deaths from the COVID-19 vaccines have been reported and yet they, the injections, still have emergency use authorization from the MHRA. All those people now suffering because of your criminal negligence, and the Swiss think the same by the way, criminal negligence as you saw, is unforgivable. Final reaction I found, this is not to uh, that campaign but being tagged afresh in Twitter, hey MHRA, I raised a freedom of information request asking you to publish the public assessment report for COVID bivalent boosters. That's the two-in-one jab that Debbie's been talking about in her blog. You, the MHRA, sent a response, as they do to Mike Robinson often, this time on the 16th of September, stating a Section 22 exemption because these reports would be published within eight weeks. Your eight weeks is up today. Where are the reports? Oh, yes, one more here. Charlie's Fingers says... MHRA, and this was again replying directly to the, uh, the three-year-old cartoon, we see you for what you are now, enablers and not regulators, something that Dame June Rain has said in her own right, by the way. I heard today that over 70% of your funding comes from pharmaceuticals and a certain guy called Bill. 
Yes. They're hosted by their own Qatar, aren't they? All the things they're saying there are things that they've told us themselves. On very quickly to Portugal. Oh, yeah, we're going through that, sorry. Yes. Well, I was, I was, yeah, go ahead, Alex. Portugal's uh, Espresso is reporting that patience has limits and so does the constitution. Uh, Miguel Prata Roque is a professor at the law faculty in Lisbon and is saying that fundamental rights are well known, not least in the work of Ronald Dworkin, quote on screen in Portuguese at the moment, to be there for individuals to assess, to assert their rights against tyrants. And he says the problem is there are now many people who are dreaming uh, of a new world, not his exact words, but my, uh, uh, my uh, summary, they're progressivists. And now that Portugal has come to revive its con- revise its constitution, uh, it seems that uh, Prime Minister Antonio Costa is unlawfully directing the committee behind the scenes that's adapting the constitution. So look for this to happen in other countries. The point being, and you can read about this in English in the show notes as well from the expats newspaper Portugal Resident, that there are MPs in Portugal who are saying, uh, we accept that the new Article 27.3 of the Portuguese Constitution will allow for people to be detained as a health threat. It's just that you're going about it in the wrong way. Even in a constitutionalist country like Portugal, no parliamentary opposition to the idea that from now on, there's going to have to be some kind of pseudo-constitutional basis for detaining people for health crimes. Indeed. Okay, and uh, Debbie, uh, what are organoids? Right. So I just want to put a a little warning. So if anybody's having lunch or if anybody's got any children around or you're feeling a little bit queasy at the moment, you might want to refresh a bit later when you're not about to eat your lunch. I want to talk very quickly about NIBS, uh, the National Institute for Biological Standards, which are part of the MHRA. Now, I wasn't aware until actually yesterday, the MHRA board meeting, where Mark Bailey, the chief tech officer, um, he was talking about the fact that they were the global lead in stem cell research and stem cell bank. And here you can see that they're ready with their stem cell lines now available for clinical development. So this is a big subject. Stem cells really are master cells. They're the body's master cells they renew. So what do we do with stem cells? So if you're about to eat your lunch, look away, because this is what I've discovered we're doing with stem cells. So we are actually growing brains in a lab and what you can see there is on the right is a lab made mini brain with eyes now these are made from stem cells so we go back to nibs so you can see the connection there so these organoids as they're called they're tiny 3d tissue cultures they're originally stem cells um, and if you think it's a bit frankenstein you'd be absolutely right but you know what business is booming organoid business is massive you can grow a liver a brain eyes muscles skin pretty much whatever you want a little miniature one so we're going into little tiny miniature science here nanoparticulars etc miniature so let's look a little bit more about human organoids and brain organoids because you know what we can make them brainier they're that clever this is miniature science So if we can make these little brains, which look like little tiny clusters of cells in the labs, what else can we do with them? Maybe they could be conscious. In fact, some people are saying maybe they're sentient. So, uh, you know, this is an article here. I'm just pointing people in, in the direction here of what is going on in life sciences. This is not science fiction. This is science fact. So in Dr. Alison Mutoti's laboratory, there are literally 
thousands of little brains growing, literally just growing. So let's flip on again to, to the next slide and we can see that Pfizer, oh, they're knee deep in organoids. They've been in, into the market of organoids for a very long time. And Alex might be interested to know that the whole organoid business um, was invented or discovered in Utrecht and by a man called uh, Dr. Hans Cleaver. So clearly we've got pharmaceutical um, involvement going on with uh, organoids. But let's see how many organoids we can actually find because there's an organoid for everything. So I've just literally got a few articles here that I've put all on one page so you can see that we can use organoids from human fetuses, we've got next generation cancer organoids, we've got tumour derived organoids, we've got heart forming organoids, you name it, we've got it. But what did interest me was how you made these organoids and without saying too much I just want to point people in this direction because it seems that Organoids require hydrogel or matrogel, which is um, a preservative, and it needs to be frozen. All of these um, organoids need to be frozen between minus 80 and minus 135. So at minus 80, they can be preserved for about six months. But who's involved in organoids? Well, in this country, we're going to go back straight back to remember where Dr. Alison Cave came from in the MHRA. Let's have a look at Welcome Sanger, because the Welcome Sanger have a massive project and they've developed 100 cancer organoid models already. And then you go into cell model passports. This gets very, very technical. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a bioengineer. So I'm literally finding this out and I, what I want to do is to show people what is actually going on in the scientific world. But very quickly, if we just jump forward again, we can see that not only are we growing things in labs, but we're putting things on chips. So this is an organ on a chip. And if anybody wants to search, uh, you know, just put into the search bar organs on a chip, it'll light up like a Christmas tree. This is big, booming business. This is basically having a chip and it will regenerate your organs. So if it detects that one of your organs isn't working terribly well, it'll it'll go, oh, wow, don't worry. We'll be able to send the right, whatever it is, electrical impulses or uh, medicines, pharmacological interventions to regenerate that organ. But we're not doing just labs on a chip and brains on a chip. We're doing everything on a chip. And here you can see we're modeling brains on a chip. So everything seems to be going on a chip. And this really isn't science, uh, science fiction. It's science fact. And you can see there that there's a lab on a chip. Micro, I can't even say it, microfluidics, a world congress, which is about to be held this December in California. So this is where we're going, folks. And this is a very scary um, development in where we're going within life sciences and um, I just wanted to highlight that mm. and navigate people to have a look at organoids research them a little bit more because there's much more in this story than we perhaps realize and uh, Debbie if I can just respond to that and and say and of course nobody is regulating these people and their 
experiments in any sensible way. You've just demonstrated to us by that, uh, by the couple of clips of the MHRA, that we've got people quite clearly, uh, well, how do we describe what well, I'm going to call them incompetent. Uh, their whole nature makes them unsuitable to provide regulation. And yet these techniques are now going to be unleashed on the public as experiments, as black triangle medication, in inverted commas. It's, uh, it's outrageous. Well, one very, very quick point there, Brian. Um, the MHRA yesterday in their board meeting quite clearly said they were a regulator. 100% they said it. June Rain said she is a regulator. So she can't make up her mind whether she's a regulator, an enabler, but clearly there are huge conflicts of interest. And the other things that, the other thing, one little point that people might be interested in is the word organoid. Do you remember me talking about Dr. James Giordano, DARPA, Pentagon, uh, neuroscientist? Organoid is actually an anagram of Giordano. Just a, a weird fact to throw in there to end it. Yeah, okay, good. thank you for that. Uh, one final slide then, uh, which I think we should leave on a slightly lighter note. Uh, you've got two here. One is a bunch of uh, commercial airliners uh, and the caption is uh, world leaders on the way to another climate conference. I believe I believe there were 400 uh, business jets flew in uh, for the COP27. Uh, but anyway, that's another thing. And then uh, on the right, we've got uh, the meme saying, uh, remember the plague that wiped out the Amish because uh, they didn't vac vaccinate their children. Uh, yeah, me neither. So that sums it up. Yeah. We, we'd better end there. Alex, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. A very big thank you to our audience, wherever you are in the world. Thank you to all the people who email us to thank us for what we do. It's a very big boost for all of us here in the UK column. And please share the material. And if you can support us by making a donation or taking out a um, membership with us, that is utterly brilliant. Our intention is to grow and we're promising you some good news before Christmas. So help us make that happen. Back in a couple of minutes for extra. Okay, bye-bye.